You're listening to Grassroots, www.innovationstudios.com. I am Marcus, and on this fairly cool um, spring day, I'm sat here with another bunch of questions from you lovely people out there. The Grassroots UK podcast, the podcast for unsigned artists. The podcast aimed at the group of lads or the group of girls who are strumming a guitar for the first time and want to get into it, and uh, those of you who have dreams and are wondering how to how to get there. Always remember, here's a, here's a little bit of a tip for you, always remember that uh, when it comes to these, these legendary people that you look up to, some of these legends, they are only one bad album and you are only one good album away from appearing on the same bill. Let me promise you, some of the heroes that I grew up listening to I ended up bumping to into at Butlins or some of the some of the festivals that we played over the years. So kids, if you've got your dreams and you've got your people out there that you admire and you one day you're thinking I'll never meet them, make a decent album and let them make a bad one and see if you can meet in the middle. Anyway, um, my disclaimer first of all um, is usually that uh, the answers I give are based on the questions that you ask and on the knowledge and the equipment that I've used over the years. There's a million ways for you to find exactly what you want out there and I suggest you explore as many of them as you can. So let's get down to business. First question this week comes from Mark and Mark is over there in, let me just check this, Brentwood. He says Onga actually. Yes, Onga. Mark from Onga. Hi Marcus, how do you feel about other people playing your own guitar? Um, uh, yeah, the same way I would feel about somebody else driving my car around the block. I think... Um, you know, there's some people you can trust and some people you can't. But um, total strangers, no chance. Um, to a certain extent, if I'm teaching, then that's different. You're in a controlled environment and you might say to somebody that it sound better on your 12 string or something. So I'll lend you this or I never lend my guitars out. But I'll always, um, in a controlled environment, let somebody have a go on my Les Paul. Or in the case of a young man I teach on Fridays, Fred. Um, he's looking to buy a particular style of guitar and he doesn't know what one yet. So he said, well, I don't know whether to get a Fender Strat or a, or a Fender a Telecaster or whether to get a Gibson. So I said, well, as, as it happens, I've got all three. So why don't you try them out while you're here? Finish your lesson off and then I've got half an hour at the end where I'm not doing much. Why don't you try them out and see how you get on? So, you know, I'll always share my guitars and um, if people want to use them in a controlled environment, if I'm here, but live or anything like that, no. Um, I'm never happy with people using my guitars. I'm never happy with people using my microphone um, just because of the horror stories. But but some of them are true. I, I've worked with Ken for years and he tells me that somebody used a microphone once and um, dropped it on the floor. And, and it as it hit the floor, it popped and basically blew both of his speakers at the same time because of the big uh, thud that it sent through the um, through the drivers of the speaker and just basically popped them straight out the socket. And he, he said, we had just about got through the show with nothing but high end and tweeters. Um, so, and, and obviously there's horror stories. I know people who have, who've got stories of laying their guitars down and somebody standing on the neck and snapping it or, or somebody playing their guitars and just playing it too hard and busting a few strings on it. Or, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you're a professional and that's what you do, um, and you have your guitar set up for you to play, then it's a little bit like uh, Formula One. The car is set up for the for the actual driver himself. And if somebody else tries to drive it, um, that, yeah, that might be okay. But the chances are that they it won't be set up for them, and they'll end up not being able to do it properly. Or so it's very much fifty fifty. 
um, to be honest with you, Mark. It's it's um, in a controlled environment. I'll always share my equipment, you know, my guitars, or let let people try the the PA's, or if they're mixing, of course, I'll let them use that stuff. Or if they're recording, I'll let them move a few things around. And when I do my workshops, um, of course, I let them set up. You know, play my acoustic and set up my microphones and stuff like that. But that's a controlled environment. Live, I very rarely let anybody play my guitars. Uh, very rarely, unless I know them. If I know them, that's different. But um, no, how do I feel about it? Um, guitars are like jewellery. And, and somebody told me years ago that uh, you should never have or should never buy secondhand jewellery because it's a life lived. And it's got a lot of that person on it. Um, and I think guitars are the same. And um, certain guitars, it's like, I, I, I don't mean anything by it, but it's, but, it's, but it's the fact that a member of Metallica now owns Gary Moore's Les Paul. And I, I just, I think that's a shame. Although they respect it, and of course they're, they're legends themselves, I just look at it and I think it's such a shame. You see an iconic guitar like that, and Metallica are not the sort of band that would lend themselves to that sort of blues sound that Gary Moore has. So I don't know when it's going to get used, but I suppose if you're a guitar collector and if you've got that much money, you'd want to own it. But for me, um, there's a lot of Gary on that. And before Gary, there's a lot of Peter Green on that because um, it was uh, Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac that owned that guitar originally. And uh, the way it's wired and it's a very unique sounding Les Paul. Um, and uh, obviously, sadly, we lost Gary in 2011, I think it was. Um, but to see his guitar in the hands of somebody else just feels kind of weird. Um, in his, because I mean, I'm a huge fan of Gary Moore. I haven't got enough money to own a guitar, that's that's for sure. And maybe I wouldn't get as much out of it as as uh, Metallica will. But um, uh, the guitars have a lot of you on them. And my guitars, uh, some of my guitars, my my Les Paul that I use, nobody else can make it sound like me. And I don't mean that in a big a big egotistical way because there are plenty of players out there who are far better than me but it's got so much of me on it that it just responds to how i play and i i feel like although i don't i'm not wacky enough to to sort of think that guitars have a personality they do spend a lot of time attached to you and they do pick up i think a lot of how you play is, is ground into them so when somebody else plays my guitar it, it maybe doesn't sound um, or sustain as well when somebody else plays it. But I'm always happy to share my equipment if somebody's if in a controlled environment. But would I hand my guitar to somebody and say, here, I'll give us a song? Absolutely no chance at all, Mark. Thank you very much for your question, mate. So thanks for your time. Sophie in Thurrock says, uh, quick question this. Hi, what made you choose Oasis as a tribute band? Um, just thought it was a good idea. Just like the songs, just grew up with it and... Um, you know, knew the songs inside out. We played a lot of the songs anyway in our set. Um, and we decided it would be a bit of fun. And, and there was a lot of head scratching. You know, how do you make a, a somebody of of six foot seven uh, look anything like Noel Gallagher? And the answer is that in the end, you don't. You just have a bit of fun with it and you stick a wig on and you go to work. But we just felt there were a lot of great songs out there. We started in 2006, a couple of years before Oasis, Oasis um, split up. But we just did it for the crack, really, and and um, just because there was an opportunity to play those songs and to and there was an audience for it. Uh, I mean, now there are so many. There, there's there's probably fifty or sixty Oasis tribute bands. But when we did it, there was probably only about five or six, um, and they were spread around across the UK. Really, there was there was uh, one or two up in Scotland. There was one in Birmingham we knew of, 
Um, and there was a couple in the Midlands, uh, just past the Midlands, Birmingham is in the Midlands, but a couple up north. Um, but we put a lot of miles in. We were doing the Butlins shows in Minehead and Skeggy, and we were doing some shows up uh, right up north in Blackburn. And then they sort of dried up because a lot of the local ones started doing it. And these days, I mean, I'm based in uh, Hadley in South End, but um, there are Oasis tributes playing, Chinneries and um, all sorts of venues local to us. So they're cropping up all over the place. And uh, I don't really know, if I'm honest with you, um, how much longer we'll keep doing it for, Sophie. But um, while there's a market for it, and while people are ringing us, I guess while the phone's ringing, um, then we'll dust it off. But we don't use it as our main source of um, income. It isn't for me. For me, it's uh, kind of maybe third or fourth on my list of priorities. I have um, my lessons and my studio that I run. And, uh, and then after that, I have um, my solo shows and then the, the duo shows with uh, Ken. And then maybe Innovation and maybe Oasis at the bottom there, just because it, it's we don't get together that much. We don't play that many shows. And um, Every time we play a show, we probably have probably have about three or four rehearsals just to make sure we're tight again. So um, it's nice to get on a good run, and we have had a lot of fun with it. But why Oasis? I guess there was a market for it, and they're great songs. Um, and we had a bit of head scratching trying to choose a, a Liam, and um, eventually we, you know, my brother decided he'd give it a go, and it works. But um, same as everything else, we just thought it was a good idea. Um, to do that and and my brother has a lot of the ideas and he had another idea it was for a band called Radio Play which was a cross between Radiohead and Coldplay but um, we just didn't get round to that in the end because Oasis was taking bookings and we were fairly busy but um, that's it really just thought it was a good idea Sophie thanks for your question uh, this question is from Angie and Angie says hi Marcus can you really get away with just playing three chords for everything no you can't <laughs> There are lots of um, songs that are only three chords, lots of rock and roll songs and lots of uh, country songs um, and lots of songs that have repetitive patterns, but no, you can't. And although Stateless Quo have said many, many years and made jokes about the fact uh, that they only play three chords, they're actually one of the most um, unique and um, different sounding bands that there's ever been. Although it sounds simple, a lot of the stuff that was played by Rick and now by Richie, I think, um, was was uh, alternative tunings, different styles. And if you watch Status Quo for a long time, as I have, you'll realise that they are a great, great, great band and very, very versatile. So uh, although they probably take the most stick of all the others and they and they put that out themselves, we, we only know three chords, have a really good listen to it. You'll find there's far more to it than that. They're a great band. A lot of the rock and roll stuff, a lot of the 50s stuff, the Elvis stuff, the early Elvis stuff was three chords. So you could, I mean, if you wanted to put a set together and you wanted to play for, you could probably play for four or five hours with songs that are just the same chords. You look at, uh, you know, if it was a case of just learning three chords, you could play rock and roll all night, rockabilly all night, country stuff all night, achy breaky heart, stuff like that. It's all two chords, three chords. So you could put together a set with your limited knowledge of chords, but somewhere along the line, you're going to have to reach for a fourth chord because of the relative minors. And somewhere along the line, you're going to have to explore a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, you could you could technically play the guitar with one shape, and that would be a bar chord that you would have to slide up and down and know where it all was. But even then, the minor is a different shape. So no, you can't play all night with three chords, but um, you can put a set together with three chords if you're a rockabilly band or a rock band. Thank you for your question.
Innovation Studios is the perfect place for any aspiring singer-songwriter to take their journey to the next level. Whether that be starting at the basics of building a solid foundation on your first instrument, learning the best ways to perform your first open mic, or refining your current set with an experienced performer, or recording a polished album at the highest of standards. With soundproof walls and perfect ambience and acoustics, our studio is also a great place for a budding producer to learn their craft, hone their skills and begin producing music. Check out what we have to offer throughout our website. Go to www.innovationstudios.com. Jenny Kay, believe it or not, in Sheffield. Wow. I knew I had some listeners in Sheffield, you know, Jenny. I've been looking at it now and again, my playlist, and um, where people are listening to it. And for some reason, they're listening to it uh, up north. So I don't know if you stumbled across it by mistake or whatever. But um, anyway, Jenny Kay says, Hi, everyone at Grassroots Music. I just wondered, not all band members get on with each other. Is it easy to play together when you're constantly rowing and arguing? Um, no, it isn't. But, uh, but um, you you're there to do the job. I suppose we, you, you have to remember that it's a job you do. And although your boss in any job might be a nice guy, he's still your boss. And um, therefore, the very fact that he's your boss, probably you don't like him or you don't like her that much because they just, they're your boss, just, just a, a natural selection sort of thing. Um, in a band, when you're all making the decisions and or you're all working together, there's usually one driving force that uh, is the one booking the band or the one who's promoting it, because all four of you pulling in the same direction is pretty much impossible. You're all going to have four different ideas of where you want it to go and maybe how you want it to uh, pan out. So it's always good that if you've got maybe one or two members that uh, are pulling the strings in as much as making the phone calls and booking the band and dealing with that, because otherwise it's just conflict of interest. When you're arguing um, or falling out, you just have to remember that that stuff's off stage and on stage you've got to do your job. I mean, it's over the years, I'm sure Roger and, and Pete from The Who would have fallen out. I'm sure Francis and, and Rick from Status Quo would have fallen out. I, it's a well-known fact that Mick and Keith from The Rolling Stones have fallen out. But you have to remember that the band is bigger than any one member. And even if it's a grassroots band, if you're out on a Friday night, people are paying to see you or coming to see you or making the effort to come and see you, the band is bigger than one member and you realize that the chemistry within that band, if it's a good band and you're playing well, is more important than any gripes or any arguments that you might have or any, any ill feeling. Um, but yeah, there. of course it's hard because you, sometimes you go on stage and you, you, you're really angry with this person, you know. In my case, I was lucky because the, 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 the one person I probably fell out with more than anybody else was my brother because brothers fall out. And they argue and they know how to press each other's buttons. But the great thing about that is they also know that you can make the peace in seconds. And before you go on, you go, oh, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. We'll talk about it another time. And you go on and everything will be all right. And we didn't often drag stuff off. Um, you know, I think sometimes when it's hard is when there's a gripe between a couple of the members of the band and um, and what's going on. You're trying to rehearse and put stuff together. And maybe those two members are clashing in the studio or you know, something isn't being played right. And and for the good of the music, you've got to approach it and say, you know, can you play this that way? And, um, you, you know, therefore, you, you, call, you sort of have an argument. You're bringing your personal stuff to the rehearsal room. 
and that's something that we we never really want to do and, and people that I've worked with over the years I've always said you've got to leave it outside you can't bring that into the studio you can't take that stuff on stage I don't care if you don't talk to each other I don't care if you hate each other's guts but you can't go on stage with black eyes because you've been rolling around backstage you can't walk off stage because you've had a row you just can't you can't do that we have to do what we have to do and it ain't always pleasant and uh, I've been lucky in as much as I haven't had many falling outs uh, and anything that was, was was pretty much quickly sorted on the way home. So, look, I'm sorry about that, mate. I, you know, it's okay to... I admit that I'm wrong sometimes and, and um, you know, I'm sure the boys around me would tell tell you sometimes I gave them a hard time in wall-to-wall, but it was just something I was passionate about and uh, I never, ever carried anything on. I remember calling them out once because we were playing a show and we were on the same bill. It was a lot of legendary artists and I said look you're turning up in shorts and you're turning up in a t-shirt and you know do you want to be you know you never see me in that I want to I want to look like I belong I don't want to look like I'm I've just walked up from the crowd and and someone said can you fill in for a few songs I want to look like I, I belong there we should look like we we belong there so um it didn't cause an argument I sent a message the next day and said look I'm sorry if I was harsh on anybody last night I'm not calling out anybody individually I'm just saying um, there are some shows you play. You play in a beer garden in the summer. Look, okay, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. You want to stick a pair of shorts on, you do it, all right? But if you're playing a festival and you're on the same bill as Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Swinging Blue Jeans and Midjour, they're not going to turn up in, in shorts and a T-shirt. They're going to turn up ready to gig and ready to go to work. And they're going to look like stars. And, and although we're not stars... We should look like that. If I was playing Stephen Hendry in an exhibition, chances are I'd probably wear a waistcoat and a pair of trousers. I would be shocking. I'd be so bad at snooker. But the game, as I've said before, I think previously, over a few weeks ago, the game deserves the respect and music deserves your respect. And if you're going to perform on a Saturday night or perform on a Friday night, don't do it in a rugby shirt and jeans. Stick a shirt on, you know, look smart, look the part, look... You know, I know image is important and I know the punk bands and the emo bands and all that. You'll have stuff to say about that. And I get that. And I understand that. That's an image thing. Um, And even though it might be the green hair and it might be the piercings in the nose and stuff like that, it's still, I think, fairly smart. It's not like a pair of shorts and a vest like you're going to the gym. That's the difference. Um, And I think it's important to get an image right. You want to sweat as well. You want to look like you're sweating up there. You don't want to look cool as a cucumber. You've got to make it look like hard work because then they'll pay you more, right? So, I mean, I used to sing, used to have a towel around my neck when I used to sing the last, the last three or four songs. And um, I wasn't, on, even on the nights when I wasn't sweating, I put the old towel around the neck and people would go, God, he looks like he's working hard. Well, I was working hard, but, you know, in the middle of winter, you're not, you don't need a towel around your neck. It just looked like I was working harder. Um, so the secret's out there. And it doesn't mean you get your money back. And anyway, I don't use the towel anymore. I stopped doing that because my... My um, friend at the time said to me, you look like a, f- a boxer or something. You don't need to have that. And I thought, mm, okay, maybe we feel a bit silly about it, you know. Um, but when you're arguing, when you're falling out, when you're um, not friends, you just have to remember that um, you don't have to be friends with somebody to work with them. We all have enemies at work. We all have maybe the maybe the area manager or the site foreman that we've forgotten what they know and they're telling you how to do your job. And... Um, you know, but we eat a little bit of humble pie, all right? Don't be too proud. Just eat a little bit of humble pie. Take it on the chin and say, 
I'm sure it will blow over, all right? But the most important thing is that the four of you or the five of you or the nine of you in some of the soul bands hit that stage and put everything to one side and do your job. That's the most important thing. Uh, thank you for your question. Cat, uh, Cat in Pitsy says, Hello, Marcus and everybody at Grassroots. I hope you're well under these difficult circumstances. I just wondered... How important is personal fitness towards your own performance on stage? Hello, Kat. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't ever say that musicians have to be, um, you know, finely tuned athletes. All right, they don't. It's like darts players; people don't see them as finely tuned athletes, but they are darts fit, and snooker players are snooker fit, in as much as for what they do, they're as fit as they can be. And I think singing and performing, um, I feel like, I mean, I, I didn't, I haven't played a show for a long time. And um, and I know that I needed to, I needed to get a couple of stone off, which is what I've done. Uh, I've got a couple of stone off and I've been trying to lose, lose some weight and get fitter. And I've been rehearsing, trying to get the voice back. But I like to think of myself as um, kind of stage fit. So I could play on stage for two or three hours and because I'm singing and because of the breathing. And that's that's what you need to look at when you're a singer. It's the cardio thing. See, putting weight on didn't necessarily affect how I stood on stage or what I wore. But it affected my breathing because uh, I would get out of breath quicker. So cardio-wise, being fit to sing is important. Um, and you have to remember that for, for 20 or well, for 30 years, all I've done is sing. And all of a sudden, you're not singing for a while and you're thinking, wow, you know, this is this is hard. But if you if you've got anything that's a habit, maybe there's people out there that used to play cricket and you didn't play for 10 years. And someone said to you, oh, make a comeback. You thought, I'll do this. And when you went out there, the action was still there and the technique was still there. But my God, you ached for about four days afterwards because your body wasn't used to it. And that's what this is about. I think that I am quite stage fit, um, but I'm not fit. I can't run and I can't um, do an awful lot. Um, I can't, you know, I couldn't run more than a couple of miles before I'd be, you know, hanging on to one of the road signs and probably have to get a cab. Um, but I could stand on stage for two or three hours. I have done three and a half hour shows and some of the ones abroad, uh, which I hadn't done for years, but some of the ones that were abroad were sometimes, you know, two or three, four hours a night. And matter of fact, Ken, who's uh, in high and dry with me and facing music with me, um, said that when he was in Hamburg in the in the mid seventies, they used to do five fifty minute sets a night between something like nine and two in the morning, and that's a long time to be on stage. You know, five fifty minute sets. I mean, what's that? It's, it's over four hours on stage every single night, and um, unbelievable um, amount of first of all amount of songs that you'd have to know, but the wear and tear on the body. And yeah, my back hurts when I've been standing up there and my shoulder hurts and the and the, the sort of spattering of shows that I've played um, since the lockdown have really taken their toll on the shoulder and on the back because the posture hasn't been good because I've not been used to it. So I know what I've got to do and I know I've got to get myself back um, to a reasonable level. And this is the reason why when people have asked me about wall-to-wall um, -wall coming back on a personal thing level, I couldn't be that bloke. It would take me too long. I'd have to lose two and a half stone. I'd have to be, because I was younger and I was fitter and I was throwing myself around. And these days I can't throw myself around. If I, 
my good good as me if I hang the washing out, I have to go and sit down for ten minutes because my arms ache from reaching up. So you have to be fit for what you do, cat. I think you have to be um, fairly uh, stage fit. So although I, as I said, although I can't necessarily do a load of weights and walk to you know walk many many miles on stage, I feel good and I and I feel like I could do the job. And be up there for three or four or five hours sometimes. I never get tired on stage. I never feel like I've had enough of this. Whereas I get tired doing everything else. So I think that's the difference. You have to be fit um, for what you do. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had to put in the big ones. And, and I have a lot of pride in my performance, as I'm sure, as, as I'm sure you do too, um, in what I do. And um you know, you, you, you don't want to be spilling out your trousers. You don't want to stand up there and have people sort of saying, oh, he used to be really good, this guy. I want to be the first one who knows when it's time. I want to be the first one who says, my body's not doing what it was, what it used to do. I need to get out. I don't want somebody else to tell me or I don't want a venue to suddenly not ring me and say, no, we stopped booking you because, you know, you're not as good as you used to be. Um, I want to be the first one that knows. So whilst I've had this break and everyone's had this break, which was forced upon us, I've been able to do a lot of other things. I mean, showbiz, you know, I've had um, as a new uh, The Men of Earth album comes out next week. I've been working on that. It comes out on the 4th of July. Uh, Lonely in a Crowded Room will be coming out probably the month after um, July or August. Um, 20 Forever came out last summer. So I've been singing and songwriting. And while I've been teaching online, I've been singing. And kept the voice in uh, sort of trim here and there. But that's only a couple of hours a day. Um, so recently I've had to push it and really work it. So it gets back to where it was. But I think when the time comes and we're on stage regularly, Kat, um, it's probably going to be six or eight weeks of, of the constant singing before you settle back into it. And you realise, you remember where you were singing from and the songs that you sang and how you sang. I know it's, it's it seems like a strange thing, but... You don't just open your mouth and sing. You sing each different song a different way with a different attack sometimes. And um, it's remembering what you did. And it, it, like anything with habit, it's more about getting back into it regularly and being um, ready for it all the time. Somebody said to me once, a wrestler said to me once, See, I saw him get slammed and we were chatting afterwards. I was setting up the ring and I said, does that hurt? And he went every time. And he said, it still hurts now. And I've been doing this 20 years, but now... I'm so used to it, I don't think about it. But he said, the first few times, I thought, God, that hurt. And now I just get up and carry on. So I think uh, um, maybe the wrestlers taking it completely different. They haven't been doing an awful lot. And all of a sudden, they're going to step back in the ring again and um, suddenly think, wow, you know, this is that hurts. And, and they never would have thought about it before. So I don't know, actually. I'll have to, um, I'll have to ask... Um, some of the people I know in that uh, in that industry, you know, is it is it strange? Does it hurt now when you're getting slammed for a few weeks because you've you've um, stepped away from it for that amount of time? But I think it's important to be fit in as much as you, you're doing strange hours, and sometimes you don't get home till two or three in the morning. I think where singing is concerned, it's more important that you drink plenty of water. It's more important that you don't attack too much cheese or chocolate on the particularly on the days of shows, but in general, I think. And it's more important that you're fit enough to do the job that you're doing. Um, that's the most important thing. I don't think anybody really, if a plumber comes around your house, you might look at him and think he had a bit of a, you know, he had a bit of a beer gut, and he, but he was fit to do that job. He's done plumbing all of his life. And he didn't think about it. 
Um, and you, you see some people out there who, who are doing things and carpet fitters and things like that and um, all sorts of guys who, and, and girls who do all sorts of jobs. Um, I think everything that you do really takes a toll on your body. And um, if you haven't done that for a while, you're going to feel it. So I'd advise, Kat, if, if you know, if it's something you're, that you do and something that you, you're looking to get into or getting back into, you just get as fit as you can for what you do. It's no good Usain Bolt training to be a discus thrower because that's not what he does. But he trains and focuses on the things that he does. And I don't know whether he could actually run as far as Mo Farah. And I doubt that Mo Farah could probably run the 100 metres as fast as Usain Bolt. But for what they do, they are fit for what they want to be. And I am stage fit, I think, for the stuff that I do. And that's the most important thing, Kat. Thank you very much for your question. And I wish you all the best. Ever wanted to play guitar? 10-minute tutorials. Now on YouTube, Beginner's Guitar. Marcus takes you through the early stages, tuning, basic chords, and strum patterns to start you on your journey. For further information, go to www.innovationstudios.com. Ricky says, hi, mate, I've been listening to your albums and uh, it sounds really, really Britpop, but I just wondered what decade has been the most influential to your own music and your own writing? Hello, Ricky. Um, I don't know, mate. I, I really don't know. I, I understand where you're coming from with the, um, with a Britpop thing because that's kind of, I was in my early 20s when Britpop hit um, and I, I always loved that, uh, that sort of style. Um, but I have so many different influences from ACDC and ZZ Top and Iron Maiden and uh, so many. Um, but the, when, I, when I tried to write the, the stuff by the matching, I kind of settled on a sound which was a bit Brit poppy. So therefore 90s, uh, maybe a little bit uh, sort of ACDC, just sort of chunking guitars. Um, I would say probably, I mean, the 60s has probably made me the most money over the years playing the songs from the 60s and playing the Beatles tribute and stuff like that. But then, you know, to be fair, the 90s has made me a few quid as well. Um, I don't really think that the 70s or the 80s for me, um, because that's two completely different things, although the glam rock stuff I kind of like. Um, and I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love all that music. Some of it's fantastic, but I just mean for me personally and, and, uh, and the career that I've had and the things that I've done and... Um, wasn't really about um, the, the 70s or the 80s, but I look back on those, or, or certainly the 80s fondly, um, and the artists that come, you know, that came from the 80s. But the most, the biggest influence on me is probably the, somewhere between the 90s and a little bit of 60s thrown in as well. Um, when it came to writing the songs for the Men of Earth album, that was just, that took me right back to folk and um, all sorts of other stuff. So, I don't know, I don't want to sound like everybody else who sort of says, oh, we don't sound like anybody else, Ricky, you know. Um, you know, I can tell all the influences in my music and, and no doubt other people would be able to pick up on it and say, oh, that sounds, there's a song at the end of uh, 20 Forever called Living on a Barrel of a Gun and somebody messaged me and said, oh, it was a bit ACDC that one. I bet you had your school uniform on when you were singing that. Um, well, I didn't actually, because uh, my school uniform doesn't fit me anymore. But that's the only reason I wouldn't wear it. 
Um, but yeah, it is a little bit ACDC, but then you've got other band, other, other influences in there that I can hear. There's some Irish influences in there. There's um, a song that opens next year's album, um, which uh, I always plan that far ahead. I, I like to have an album title and because I was chatting to somebody about this earlier, Helen, uh, Helen Harpole, Helen Mandolin, who once again has taken the time to print up some of my questions for me at her own expense as well. And I really appreciate that. Um, and we were chatting earlier and I said, it's like, you know, you know, you, you look at something and you say, like the council planning, they look at something and they say, there's a space there, let's put a park in. Now, you know, it's going to be a park. And so what do you put on it? What do you put in that park? But you start with um, the fact that it's a park. Well, in my case, next year's album is called Midnight for One Second. I know there's going to be 10 songs on it. I know what the artwork is, but I don't know what the songs are yet. I've only got one song so far, but the, the song that will open it, I think, is called Don't Ask, Don't Get Anything Done, which is dadgad tuning and therefore is uh, has like, sounds a little bit Irishy and uh, a little bit Celtic. Um, but I think it's a great song, but I would, wouldn't I? It's mine. Um, but the, the, the honest truth is that um, I think you can take and influence so many different things, Ricky, and I think the important thing as a songwriter, now, that's not to say that, um, you know, if you look at you look at certain albums out there, my, my biggest problem when I first started recording albums just to sell at my gigs, you know, my, my first two or three solo albums, which, you know, rare as... Rare as rocking horse poop these days, um, you can't get anywhere. And um, but when I've recorded them, you know, in my little room at my nens, um, every song was different. It was a different style. They were just, um, you know, twelve songs that I'd written, and I didn't really care about uh, what style they were under or what genre they were under. And by doing that, it meant that there were people that liked the album, and so I like the fact that it's. You know, it's it's a bit mixed up, and but it also meant that some people would like maybe two songs, and some people would like one song, and some people would like maybe four songs, but nobody liked the whole thing, and some people didn't like any of it. Um, probably using it as a coaster now, put their coffee on, but that's the key to it, I think. Um, I, I I settled on it, and I thought, well, if I'm going to make an album again, and it took me a long time to to look at it and say, no, if I if I'm going to make an album, then I'm going to make an album that's a certain style and I, I, although I can write songs in all different styles I've got vehicles for that I've got other projects for that I've got the men of earth to write the folky stuff or the acoustic stuff with I could do a solo album if I wanted that would be acoustic but anything that sounds a certain style and rocks a certain way or whatever I know is the matching and then after maybe the the first two albums I know that that's the sound of that band so if I write something that isn't in the style of that band then I don't um I'll put it to one side. So I won't release an album where it sounds completely, completely different to everything else. Um, I'm not having a go at anybody, but the amount of people that do that, that release an album, and then all of a sudden it's so different to everything that went before. And I, and I feel like although a lot of people like change and it might reach out to another audience, um, the original audience are saying, what's that about? It's like the, the couple of albums, um, you know, that... that where, where rock bands suddenly become dance artists for a couple of albums because they want to do something different and, and tap into that market. That's fine. But I feel like um, it's the consistency that's important. It's the fan base that you build up that follow you tour after tour after tour because the new ones, if they come and see you live based on the, the songs that you've written for that dance album, are only really going to like 
maybe the seven songs that you play from the new album um, of dance. The rest of it, they're going to be standing there going, wow, this is different to everything else. So it's very much that, um, you know, that you, you kind of need to be influenced by all different things. But I feel it's important. What what gives a band its sound is the um, individual members of that band. So um, in the case of um, maybe the Stones or something like that, the songs are written usually on a couple of acoustic guitars. And then when the band get hold of it, they bring their own take on it. Um, and then it it puts it under that category. But um, I don't think I don't really think if you if you listen to a Stones album from 1971 and a Stones album from 1994 and a Stones album from last year. That musically um, and in terms of the sounds of the guitars and the, and the pieces, I don't think it's changed that much in terms of staying true to to what they know and 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 they have a sound. And what I always think is, um, if, if a sound kind of transcends you, it's a little bit like everybody knows Motorhead because Motorhead are two hundred miles an hour and uh, you know a thousand decibels, um, but they they were far more than that. If you listen to it, they were far more than that, but. Their, their sound and their image transcends um, their their music. And I think in the case of the Beatles, even if even the parents or the people who never listened to the Beatles would follow the image and therefore the Beatles were bigger than music. Therefore, Oasis were bigger than music. You suddenly have guys walking around with a bowl cut again. Um, not the bowl cut, but you know what I mean, the mod hair, and walking around with um, Ben Sherman shirts and swaggering about and... Um, because the image and and the, the Sex Pistols as well, the punk revolution, you know, listen to the album. It's a great album, but it's more than that. It's it's kind of what uh, what came afterwards. It's the fact that people wanted not just to like that album, but to like the image that came with that album and the gathering of people dressed that way to celebrate that album. Um, and. For, for me, I think um, when it comes to be to things that are influential and music that's influential, I think you can take a lot of influences from a, a lot of different things. But I think it's important, Ricky, as a songwriter, that you explore as many possibilities as you can. But when it comes to making an album or if you have a band that has a, you know, a certain amount of success, don't suddenly become a band that plays uh, songs in a Spanish style if you've been a rock band for a couple of albums, unless those first two albums have bombed, in which case try something different. But if you've had a, you know, people listen to it and you like how the album sounds and you think it's, it sounds nice. It's good. I think it's important to be true to yourself and, and play the stuff that you want to hear. But I think what the trap you can fall in by being a versatile musician is that you become a versatile songwriter. And I think if you become a versatile songwriter, that's great, providing you've got that many different outlets for it. If you've only got one band and you're writing all of these songs, chances are a lot of them won't get used. So um, I think in this day and age, things have changed. And um, just just write what you feel. It sounds like I'm saying don't follow, don't don't stay true to yourself, but you should. You should stay true to yourself and you should write what you want to write. Or as Harry Enfield said, we... We write what we like, like, and we like what we write, right? Um, and that's the thing. It's it's very much like you, you have to write the things that come to you. I've said this before. You know, Monty Python, it was just about six blokes in a room making each other have a laugh. That was it. They didn't know where it was going to go with the audience. And, and that's why um, 
a lot of these people, the great comedians, the the the, the Billy Connollys, the Michael McIntyres, the the Lee Evans, the people who, who have become comedy legends, but Deal and Skinner, quite often would do. You know, when they wrote the material, would go out and and do um, maybe the comedy clubs or just play to a small audience, just to try the equipment or the equipment, trying the material out, just to see how it went, because they got that instant reaction that they wouldn't get by just thinking it was funny, by reading it amongst themselves. So I think you have to explore as many styles as you can. The biggest influence on my songwriting would have been the 90s and Oasis or the 60s and the Beatles. Um, but I, I think you can write the song in so many different ways, Ricky. You can jam as a band like Genesis did and see what comes out of it. You can write the song on acoustic guitar and then put it together as a band. You can um, have the whole song in your head and get the, the rest of the band to just play it as you hear it and as you wrote it. Um but just explore many different ways. As I say in my disclaimer at the start, there are a million ways to get the results you want. Try them all. But I feel like where I'm concerned with the matching, if if um, I you know this, the next next year's album, although I don't have the songs, I kind of know how it's going to sound. Um, and because there are things on on um, different albums that are slightly different, the songs are slightly different, and therefore um, the attack is slightly different. And therefore, things are things change in as much as you know the chords and the style of the song and all that sort of stuff. So, um, explore all of your possibilities, Ricky. All right, if that's what you do. If it isn't what you do, thank you for your question anyway, and I'm glad you're showing an, in, an interest in it um, because we need people like you to show an interest in music. Music's not dying by any stretch, but it's not supported in the same way as it should have been, um, and it will. Um, if if it doesn't become as important as it was, that's a big, big change. As, as a musician, I don't care if Wimbledon doesn't go ahead. As a musician, I don't care if the Euros don't go ahead. And as a musician, I don't care if the Crucible doesn't go ahead or the Tour de France. I don't care. But I do care if shows don't go ahead. And I'm passionate about that. And I'm hoping that um, they will. Um, thank you for your question, Ricky. As a matter of fact, thank you for everybody who wrote in this week. Um, I'll be back next week. Um, keep your questions coming in. www.innovationstudios.com or innovationstudios at uh, innovationstudiosuk at gmail. All right, that's it for me. I'm out of here. Take very good care of yourselves, all right? Yours in Music signing off. Bye-bye for now.